Welcome to the World of Horror Podcast, Episode 93. I'm Mom. And I'm Mac. This is the podcast where we share our love of international horror. Fear is universal, but we are not afraid of subtitles. Whoa-hoes! Whoa-ho-ho-hoes, I should say. Oh, yeah, buddy. That's Got him. That's a good one. Nailed it. This week, my genre pick is cults. Again. Woo! <laughs> Can't get enough of cults. We reviewed Kill List from the UK and The Stepford Wives from the US. Before we get into it, fair warning, these discussions will include spoilers and language which may not be suitable for all listeners. move on to our first segment, Mom and Mac Chat. Hi, Mac. How's it going? Good, Mom. I <laughs> hope you are doing well. Um, you know, I had a three-day weekend, so I did not want to go back to work, but it wasn't even that bad. So what I did today was watch our two movies. So, oh. hey, can't be that bad if I can do that at work. <laughs> oh, you did that at work? Well, I mean, I work from home, so... This right. is my office. They don't yeah. know what I'm doing. That's true. Hey, Liz, I do all the work they give me, and then if they don't give me any more, I'm not going to ask. <laughs> that seems fair. Yeah. They really wanted me to do it. They tell me. I um, I unloaded two carloads of stuff at my new place today. Nice. And it was like activity central because the painters were there. There were three painters. Mm-hmm. And then there was a little bit of mildew in the in this storage area downstairs. And uh, so we had this whole plan for like how to like dehumidify it and dry it out and, and, and seal it and all this stuff. And the guy's like, it's not that bad. I thought there'd be mildew on all the sheetrock that they had put up and um, there isn't. So I'm hoping maybe he'll be done sooner and it'll be a cheaper job. Mm. Um, and what else happened? Well, I walked five miles just, you know, loading up and unloading my car. Wow. Yeah. So that's a lot, but I'm just been taking stuff into the basement because that's where I'm going to set up my studio. So very exciting. And, um, yeah, it's like, I guess I really do have this house now. So yeah, it's all yours. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Now I just have to load up this house because I have actual movers that are coming. Mm-hmm. But they're coming in one week. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but, I mean, I've made a good start, and it'll all get done, and it'll be fine. Yeah. And I was talking to my therapist today, and I'm just like, I just, it just feels weird, you know? And I think it's just because of my catastrophic thinking. I'm just like, what, what's going to go wrong? Because mm. this process has been super easy. Mm-hmm like cheaper than I thought it was going to be like just super, super fast and easy. And so I'm like, okay, what's the catch? But there doesn't have to be a catch. My brain works the same way. I was just telling Alan that like whoever made me in this world definitely granted me a big imagination, but I wish it was an imagination that thought of like, 
fairies and fantasy world, but instead the imagination is like, how did you ever think that somebody thought that about you? Or like, how did you ever think that that was going to happen? Like, on the one of the first times I remember, like, having a crazy maladaptive daydream like that was I was waiting for you to come home. And this was like, when we lived, like, with dad. And yeah, I remember looking outside the window and just thinking, well, she she must have gotten to a car accident and died. That's the only reason that she's not here right now. Wait, you had that thought. At, so you were pretty young. You were like eight. You were eight when I left for the first time. But yeah, that that like that hadn't happened yet. You were just late coming home from work that day, and yeah. I just was like, no. But well, I'm just trying to figure out how old you were. So I'm just like too young. <laughs> like, what the fuck was wrong with this I don't, child? I don't, well, I. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I love <laughs> therapy because I feel like I learned so much about myself, hmm. almost like a fictional character. Like, well, of course that makes total sense. Given, yeah. given all of this, it makes sense that, you know, I would have these thoughts and do these things and whatever. It, it's okay. <laughs> It's not like you can you came by it very honestly, so you know there's nothing you could have done about it. I know, but it's it's more just like annoying. Like I like I'm definitely like wow, I do have a big imagination, but I wish it wasn't so like a toxic imagination. Like all my dreams, my whole life have always been like sleeping dreams have always been bad. Like, it's always, like, something horrible's happening. It's never been, like, I'm flying through the sky and, like, wow, everything's beautiful. It's always, like, well, <laughs> there's a gunman after you and you have to run. Why? <laughs> Why? I don't know. <laughs> I, I have good and bad imagination thoughts. You could maybe try to, you know, turn it around in your waking life. I mean, I, it's more like the, what I have to do is stop the oncoming train. <laughs> like before the spiral starts, I have to be like, well, that's a weird thought. But then there's never, it's like, that takes so much work yeah. that it's difficult to even think about like how to turn that into a good thing. Well, let me see if I can find you something. Cause there is this, there is this practice in meditation where you just let the thoughts come. And just like you just said, it's just like, that was a thought. And, and I just imagine like, like it must've been on Sesame street or electric company or something like words going in this way and then mm. go, going out this way. And it's just that image works for me. It's just like, you know, you don't have to catch a ride on the thought. It just, yeah, it goes, passes through and it can just keep going. It's so frustrating because sometimes you don't even realize you're already strapped into the bus. Like, I know. Yeah. Like it's not even that the bus is coming. It's like you look down and you're like, "When did I put the seatbelt on? Like, <laughs> what's happening?" And then you have to rush, get out of the bus, and jump out of the window. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so that's that's a look inside Max psyche. Therapy probably would be very good for me. <laughs> yeah, I I highly recommend it. I I love it. Like my uh. Mr. C doesn't go, but, um, I, I wish everybody went and, but he'll always ask me about my sessions and stuff. 
if I want to talk about it. And I just texted him today. I'm just like, well, the upshot is I want to be open to meeting new people, mm. but I also want to be very careful about who I let into my metaphorical and physical space. Cause I won't go into it, but I had a dream. All right. I will go into it. I had a dream recently <laughs> that my mom was in my room. Well, it was sort of like a waking dream, you know, but she was like right on top of my face. Oh my and God. I was like, look, lady, you can, you can be here, but you have to like chill. Yeah. Like back off. And so I was like, what's that all about? And I think it's just, I don't want any of that energy in my life, you know? And my therapist just kept saying, and that's fine. And that's okay. And that's perfectly fine. And that's okay. <laughs> Cause I was oh. talking about like my mother and mothers are sacred. No, they're not. Yeah. She was, she had a lot of, she had a lot of stuff that was unresolved in this lifetime, shall we say. Hmm. And um, I don't want to, it's not on me to figure it out. And I just don't want that kind of energy in my life. Thank you very much. Understandable. <laughs> and this whole thing with the house is like, so like a book, like sometimes I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes I'm just like, my life is so like a book, like a story. Mm. Yeah. Like, like yeah. I'm, I'm moving into my house at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a new beginning. It's a new, it's a new thing. And it's happening like literally at the end of the year. So that in the new year, I'll yeah. have a new set of experiences and stuff. It's like, okay, yeah. but it's great because I, because of my job, I have this little break now. So it's the perfect time to move. Yeah. Just like when I had my babies, I had them both in June, which is perfect because <laughs> I teach. <laughs> I just had them at the at the right time. And I got two Geminis out of the bargain. Okay, so do you want to get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. Do you want to do Stepford first? Sure. Okay. So the first film we will be covering is The Stepford Wives. It was directed by Brian Forbes, screenplay by William Goldman, and it's based on The Stepford Wives, a novel by Ira Levin. It stars Catherine Ross, Paula Prentice, Peter Masterson, Nanette Newman, Tina Luis, and Patrick O'Neill. Cinematography by Owen Roisman, released February 12th, 1975. With a runtime of 115 minutes, mom watched it on YouTube. I watched it on my beloved app, Tubi. Big Tubi fan. <laughs> and just this movie is, I don't know, like watching it a second time, it makes me feel so many things. And I think it's very important. And I think it's sadly becoming, in a way, a little bit more prevalent because I've been seeing a lot of stuff on TikTok of these like, alpha male podcasts you know where they're basically saying where have all the good women gone you know why can't i find a live-in um maid who you know is at my beck and call 
why do these women, these shrill feminists, you know, like they're ruining womanhood, like all this shit. And it just made this movie, which this movie's obviously always been prevalent since, you know, forever, but still it hit me an extra way watching it today. We open on our main characters, a family of four, and they're moving from Manhattan to Stepford, Connecticut, in their station wagon. We first see our main heroine, Joanna, and she's a photographer. And like one of the last parting things as they're leaving is she sees a man carrying like a mannequin just walking down the street and takes a photo, you know? So you're going from this like crazy area to the suburbs. And I feel like that's a really good beginning part of just showing her interests and and you can tell that she's just not a fan the whole time that they're going there. And already like her and her husband are bickering. Like he's like, you know, you said you cleaned out everything, you know, as soon as I get into the car. Also, he seems a lot older than her. I don't know what the actual age difference is, but now they're in a giant house and with, you know, a giant beautiful yard. And as they're unpacking everything, this woman brings a casserole over. She's wearing this beautiful prairie dress. Um, her name's Carol Van Sant. She's very beautiful, but there's absolutely nothing behind those eyes. She just brings it over and is like, here, like, here you go. I made you a casserole. And uh, the husband just takes it and is like, oh, thank you. He sees her husband, These the Van Sants live right across the street from them, and he just says, she cooks as good as she looks, Ted. Okay. So that night, you know, Joanna is still lamenting the fact that they've moved and you know, she's asking uh, Walter, why did we move anyway? And he just keeps listing the reasons why Joanna's not a fan. The next morning, she looks, she's going to go bring the casserole pan back to Carol and stops behind these, like a shrub and sees Carol being approached by her husband, Ted, who just opens up her blouse and touches her breasts and then just leaves. And you know, at first, you know, Joanna, I think, sees this as like, wow, these two, these two are still kind of in love, aren't they? But she does think it's a little bit strange. Like she smiles, but she's like, okay. So she tells her husband, and I think this is just such a great, there's so many great little scenes like this, because she tells it to Walter. And he's like, well, I mean, what's wrong with that and goes to feel he's like wait was it like this and goes to feel her up and she immediately like shrugs away like hey stop that that's how a real person reacts you know if you sure obviously if you're in some kind of you know obviously there are relationships that we've all been in probably where you know that kind of thing is totally fine but they were in public you know on her front lawn and i think this just goes to show a great thing of like Women are not just there to be grabbed at, even if they're your wives, you know, um, a real person with real, you know, autonomy is like, hey, just don't come over me and grope me like that. There's just a lot of little things like that that I love. By the way, six years difference between the actors. Ah, they look way different. Like he well, looks way older. Than he's her. balding. And I think that probably makes him look a little older. And she's but, beautiful. Yeah, so. she looks so she was 35. Wow. Um, or 34, 35 when they were filming, but she looks much younger. There, there are some scenes where you can see like the wrinkles around her eyes and she does have a maturity to her, but she, I did just think like she was way younger than him. 
So Walter tells her about this club in Stepford called the Men's Association. And, you know, he's just kind of telling her about it like, yeah, I'm thinking of joining. Here's the rub. Uh, It's only for men. And that kind of sets her off. And she, you know, goes on and says, you know, why do you keep asking me what my opinion is when you've already made a decision? You know, she's like, you say that, you know, you're thinking about moving. I find out you're already looking at houses. You ask me if this house is good. I find out you've already put down a down payment. You ask me if I should join this club. You've already joined the club. Why are you even asking me? And again, like, why should the husband have complete autonomy over whatever the family does? She uprooted her whole life and the kid's life to move there. Next day, we're at the supermarket. And Carol from before and another woman get into a little tiny crash in the parking lot. And Carol just keeps repeat, like she kind of like touches her head and everybody's really worried about her. And she just keeps saying, oh, this is silly. You know, it's it's just my head. But she says this over and over again. And everybody watches as the ambulance carries Carol away. But Joanna notices that it's going in the complete opposite direction of the hospital. And even Walter's like, huh, you're right. And they go home. Actually, I like that part too, because he goes, first he goes, no, you're wrong. Yeah. And then he goes, oh, actually, you're right. That That is the most annoying thing when there. there's also something I experience a lot where, you know, you tell somebody something that is true and they don't believe you, they don't believe you. And then as soon as they hear it from somebody who I guess they just assume has more knowledge than you, they hear the exact same thing and they go, well, now I believe it. That pisses me off so much. Me too. So that evening, also one of the daughters, uh, their daughter has uh, misgivings about this house. She's, as Joanna's tucking her in at night, she's like, you know, Mr. Teddy doesn't like it here. And Joanna, you know, just tries to assure her like, you know, sure, like it's just a new place. And he actually enlists all the nice things about Stepford. And she goes to bed, but wakes up and notices that Walter is not in the bed with her. So she goes down and she sees him sitting, looking so morose right in front of the fire, nursing a cup of scotch. And she's like, hey, like, what's going on? How did the initiation go? And he's like, it's not a fraternity. There was no initiation. We just talked. And, you know, she's trying to see, you know, what happened. She's like, did they say anything to you to upset you? And he's like, no, no. And you can see there's tears in his eyes. And he turns to her and says, you know, I, I really love you. You know, I really love you. She's like, okay, okay. And this scene to me is so chilling. Yeah. This is because, and this really begins to what me, what, what I think is this movie is such a psychological horror thing. It's these things that like you really continue to think about. And it's both so sad and so scary because at this moment, he knows what's going to happen to her. And they, they've told him, this is what we do. And he's, and he's wrestling with he's it. He's signed on. Yeah. And he's signed up to do it. And he's feeling guilty. And thinks that he can solve it by just being like, you know, I really love you. And that's what's terrible. It's so scary that that there can be people in your life who you believe and, you know, who tell you that they love you and they might even really believe it and they don't. That's scary. Mm -hmm. So he apologizes to her too. And, you know, she gets him to bed. So the next day we see this 
wonderful lady, Bobby Marco, come walking towards down this field towards Joanna because there's an old lady who's who asked Joanna some questions to put some info about her in like the Stepford newspaper, you know, so Bobby comes over and is like, hey, are you Joanna, the avid shutterbug from Manhattan? And she's so excited to meet her. She seems like a normal human woman besides all of these wives that we've seen about. And, you know, they, they're chit chatting and they're just, I love these two. The mm-hmm. dialogue is so natural. And it, that's what I think this movie gets really well is like the Stepford wives feel like Stepford wives. But these two feel like real women to me. Like their friendship seems so real. You know, they're just shooting the shit. You know, they have they dip into Walter's scotch and and Bobby gives her some ring dings that she says, Oh, I smuggled these across the border. And they both, you know, are just uh bitching about this burg. And Bobby is so happy to see that Joanna has a messy kitchen just like her. You know, she's like, God, it seems she's like maids are outlawed, apparently. And it's a competition to see who can have the cleanest kitchen. But I don't even know what we're competing for. And they're both just like, yeah, this is crazy. And they just think like, okay, well, they're just a bunch of wackadoos. And she really is just like a, a breath of fresh air in this movie. So Walter asks Joanna later if they could have a little, uh, if the men's association can meet at their house. And f- Joanna's a fucking trooper. She's like, yeah, in 20 minutes, I'll get everything ready. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Alan called me and said, hey, some friends. And and mind you, his friends are nothing like these men. They're people I like. If he was like, yeah, my friends are coming over in 20 minutes, I'd be like, absolutely the fuck not. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no. And also, fuck you for asking. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> so already she's a wonderful wife. Um, you know, she's getting them all drinks. She looks wonderful. And she's doing, you know, a little a little bit of cleaning in the kitchen. And this man, Diz, comes in. He's truly like a very official older man. And he's just watching her. And then he tells her, I like to watch women doing domestic, little domestic chores. First off, gross gross um fuck <laughs> you i anybody i've heard men say things similar to this before and it's just like you are disgusting <laughs> like if i knew how to punch i would punch and joanna gives him a tort retort and says well you came to the right town and i just i love her so they have the most ridiculous meeting ever. Let me tell you, I have been a part of many Zoom meetings that went just as this one did. It's just a whole lot of like, I think we should have a cakewalk. No, I think we should have, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they can't agree on anything. It's, they're the dumbest of men. I hate it. And Joanna's just sitting there like, um, but being polite. And we can see that there's one man sketching Joanna's portrait. You know, he's, he's drawing her, you know, like looking up and it is beautiful. Joanna goes up to check up on the kids and everybody goes quiet. That was so weird. So creepy. So really creepy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so then when Joanna comes back down, she, you know, the guy hands her and we also see he's not, he sketches her face, but then he has another page of sketching her eyes, her ears, her mouth all separately. And I might be projecting a little bit. I don't know if this is what they were going for, but. I watched a great film about um, advertising and how you can study it and see all these like 
ways that they pose the women and how that reflects how we view women in society was really interesting. And a lot of it was talking about how women's bodies are almost like chopped up to sell things. Like you just see a pair of legs or you just see boobs or an ass. And there's no person attached to that. It's just their bodies being used as decoration. And I just thought of that looking at this is like he's really splitting her up into all of her little parts. So she he gives her the sketch, though, of her face, and she's amazed. She's like, wow, this is beautiful. And turns out he's Ike Mazard, who is a great artist. And she's like, oh, Mike, I'm going to – I'm." she's like, thank you. I'm going to insure this. I'm going to frame it. You know, she's so happy. That evening after the men go home, they're chit-chatting. And, you know, Walter's like, hey, what would you think of the guys? And she's like, are you kidding? They were the worst. You never would have talked to those guys in Manhattan. You wouldn't have given them the, the time of day. And you know, he's like, what do you mean? You know, he really pushes back and he's like, well, you know what? They suit me. Mm-hmm. Chilling. Chilling. So there's a neighborhood cookout. Everybody's there. And Joanna and Bobby, again, are walking around and kind of are the only ones not looking like a Stepford wife. Um Carol from earlier, who is in the car accident, is beginning to glitch. She walks up to them. She's nursing a drink and she's chewing on a cookie and she says, I'll just die if I don't get this recipe. Walks away, walks up to somebody else. I'll just die if I don't get this recipe. Like she keeps doing it and it's very eerie. And her husband sees her, you know, gives the grilling off to Walter and goes and grabs her. This is such a sad scene. He's saying like, you know, why are you drinking? You know what it does to you. And, you know, hauls her away. Later, she apologizes specifically to Bobby and Joanna and says, you know, thank goodness I'm not drinking anymore. You know, taking the full blame onto herself and says, you know, well, yeah, Ted asked me to come apologize to you. No, but I wanted to do it. I really wanted to do it. And the women tell her, you don't have to. It's it's so sad that first he's humiliating her by making this a problem with her drinking and then making her apologize to everyone. Like, it's so fucked up. They ask Carol, you know, if she'd like to come in. And she's like, no, you know, I, I need to get back and get to my cleaning. So Joanna and Bobby decide, you know, we should make like a, a women's club to talk about this. So they approach various wives to see if there's an interest. And everybody's like, you know, I would, but I'm just so, I'm so busy with all this cleaning. And they go to Patricia's house and the doors, Bobby just marches right in and they hear moans from upstairs and they hear Patricia moaning about her husband, Frank, saying, you know, you're the champion, Frank. You're the king, Frank. You're the master, Frank. And they leave and they're like, okay. Um, <laughs> but, but even that is just so like, ugh. Um, and it's that like breathy porno voice. Yeah. You know, fake. that nobody has. <laughs> yeah, that's only used to serve men's pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, so they meet Charmaine who is a tennis enthusiast. She's got a whole tennis court in her backyard, and she also is a normal woman. She's very interested. We see later, Claude, one of the men from the Gentlemen's uh, Association, or the Men's Association, comes to their house and asks Joanna to basically record 
so many words into a recorder. And he says, well, it's it's a study I'm doing. You know, I want to know all, you know, wherever you've lived, all of that. He takes all of her information down and his he says that this is so that he can develop a way to get all the information about somebody even better than a fingerprint. And Joanna is like, well, you know, this is this is going to take a little bit too long. Um, but maybe I can do it if you get the wives to come to my meeting. And he's like, you know, isn't this a kind of blackmail? And she's like, you know, we just we love Joanna. So the women's meeting starts and it's very quiet. <laughs> um, you know, Joanna's like, would anybody like to start? And just crickets. You know, she's like, okay, well, I'll start. Um, and I don't remember exactly what she says, something about Walter, you know, not feeling, basically feeling discontent. Then there's Charmaine who really opens up and she says, you know, I don't think my husband ever loved me. You know, I think I looked really great and I fulfilled that purpose. And for the executives that he works with, it was good to have a wife that looked like me. And sure, he gives me things. I can't complain about that, but I don't think he ever loved me. And, but then the other women, instead of opening up, like Kit, she says, you know, sometimes I just can't get this one stain out. And another woman says, well, you know, you should try easy on spray starch. You know, if she's, and this other woman goes into this whole thing, it's very, um, also the Truman show. She's like, you know, if they asked me to be a spokesperson, I would do it for free. That's how much I love Easy On Spray Starch. And Bobby <laughs> says, holy cow. <laughs> now, Mac, do you know Charmaine? Do you know that actress? No. Okay, that's Tina Louise. And have, mm -hmm. you, have you ever heard of a show called Gilligan's Island? Mm -hmm. She was on that and she played the movie star. Oh. So it was really cool to see her because I really really know her from Gilligan's Island where she was a comedic actress, but her character was just this glamorous, you know, mm. movie star. But I really like the character of Charmaine. Yes. I thought she was great. And again, what I think this movie does so well is like all the real women we've seen, like Charmaine, Bobby and Joanne, they're all different. Like mm -hmm. they're yeah. not all rehashings of the same you know, I just think a lot of times men cannot write women. And I think the women are actually written quite well in this. I haven't read Ira Levin's novels, but I really would like to. Me too. Having seen Rosemary's Baby, I don't know how many times. He knocks it out of the park. He really does, you know, and and that's not, it's wonderful to see that. Yeah. So Joanna takes Freddy, their dog, out for a walk after dark. Walter dials someone. He he calls over uh the men's association and they all come over and look at their bedroom. Like they're all just standing there, you know, in their suits, and they're like, okay, nice. Very weird. So Fred the dog runs off, and Joanna sees this mansion where the men's association meetings are held. There's a sheriff that comes upon her and tells her, you know, maybe you should stick closer to home. And she says, well, one of the reasons why we moved here is so that I could feel safe walking around. And he's like, well, maybe you should walk just closer to home. That's weird. <sighs> yeah. So the old lady who interviewed Joanna earlier um, tells Bobby and Joanna that there's a black family moving to Stepford. 
this scene is so and i gotta say again this as a white person who has been around white people like this this is done very well i think you know she's like i like it well i think i like it you know and you know bobby and joanna are like fine that's great and the old woman says well it's you know it makes sense because stepford is the most liberal town around and there used to be a women's club and uh you know who started it charmaine not charmaine carol okay and they even were the first club to ask a women's lib speaker to come and so joanna and bobby are just astounded so they go to ask carol about it and she's like oh you know I'm much too busy now. And we never got anything accomplished there anyway. Um, there's just no reason to have it. So Joanna makes a trip back to NYC to show her photos to a museum curator as, for some reason, Walter <laughs> begins driving Freddie away, driving deep into the woods with Freddie in a cage in the back. Yeah. As Joanna gets home, she sees that Charmaine's tennis court is being literally destroyed by by a construction crew. She she and Bobby pull in to talk to Charmaine, and she says that Ed and her went to this lovely retreat in Vermont, and they had a lot of time to talk alone together. And, you know, she actually was being very selfish by always thinking about tennis, and that uh, Ed has always wanted a pool. And, you know, so it's time that she gives a little bit back to him. World apart from the woman we were just talking about who said, yeah, I don't think my husband ever loved me. So that obviously worries them a bunch. Bobby comes to Joanna and says, you know, I read this article in Time. I cut it out. It was about this tranquilizer in Texas that got into the water. And I think that's what's happening here. There's something in the water. Joanna says that she actually had a passionate love affair with a chemist and, um, you know, kind of details this a little bit. He's a li- he's kind of somebody that, you know, she felt very close to, but it just didn't work out. So Bobby's like, call, call him up because we can't go to any of the people in this town. So they go to see him, but he doesn't find anything compelling. And as they're, the three of them are talking, you know, she's saying, Joanna's saying like, you know, yeah, I've been married. Uh, for you know this long and yeah i'm happy how about you and the the chemist says yeah you know nine years now and he writes on some of the data and shoves it over to her and it says i'm not happy either oh i missed that wow that's yeah yeah great. that's it's, really good and so then when they talk you know bobby's like you know i'll leave you too she goes and she leaves and he says to joanna like you know uh we kind of messed up, didn't we? Like, we had a good thing. And she's like, I, I don't, you know, and then she leaves. Bobby says, you know, as they're driving away, you know, she's really feeling very incensed, because apparently there's nothing wrong in the water. And, you know, she's like, you know, we, we have to get the hell out of Stepford. You come too. I can't stay here another longer. I can't become one of those people. Like, she's very afraid. That night, Joanna asked Walter if they can move out. And, you know, he says, okay, you know, we can start looking for places. How about in a few months? And she's so happy. She begins house hunting with Bobby out of town. And Bobby asks her while they're house hunting, you know, actually, can you take care of my kids and the dog? Because me and my husband are going to go on our annual trip to the plaza. And oh, of course, I, c- I can watch them. 
And again, I just, little things, I love their friendship because Bobby's like, sorry, it's really horrible, isn't it, that I'm asking you this? And Joanna says, well, it it is going to be horrible, but I'll do it. I love how they can be so honest with each other. So when the kids come over, as, as well as her giant dog, Walter is having trouble managing all these kids. You know, Joanna has just taken a bunch of photos of the kids playing outside and feels very inspired. So she's in her darkroom working and Walter keeps banging on the door being like, listen, I played Monopoly with them. I played Scrabble with them. I don't know what to do. And she says, well, I entertain them seven days out of the week. You know, so if you could just find a little bit of time to do this, that'd be great. They know all the Sesame Street songs. Sing those. Joanna goes back to the museum to show Mr. Atkinson her new photos. and. She says that she wants to be remembered as Joanna. She wants people to look at her photos and say, that's an Ingalls, her maiden name. And she says, I don't want to be forgotten. (laughs) So when Joanna then comes back, she goes to see Bobby to tell her all about, you know, how Atkinson loved her photos, you know, and Bobby is wearing a prairie dress and makeup and her hair is done and she's completely different. And, you know, she's like, yes, we just had the most wonderful time. And, you know, now I've been cleaning my kitchen and it's night and day difference. And Joanna freaks out. She rushes all the way home. She she fucking swerves past a school bus and hits the Van Sant's mailbox and goes in. And she's like, Walter, we have got to go. Walter's like, you know, you're being unreasonable, you know, and she's trying to explain to him like bobby is different i went there and her house is spotless it wasn't like that before walter says well it's about time she cleaned it because it was disgusting and hey when are you going to clean this house when's the time that we get to have a clean house not even listening to her she's literally sitting there like with her hands over her eyes as he's like you know i just think you're being unreasonable and irrational who's heard that before raise your hand um <laughs> So he's like, you know, I think you need to go get some professional help. You can ask any of the guys here in town. She's like, no, I will go get help, but I'm going to find it myself. So she goes and finds a female psychiatrist way out of town and spills the beans to her. And she's trying to explain the unexplainable what is happening in this town. And she says, if I'm wrong, I'm insane. And if I'm right, it's worse than if I'm wrong. And the psychiatrist, It's such a sweet scene. She goes to her like, you know, she's on her knees and like grabs her hands and she's like, listen, like I have to be out of town for a few days, but you should get your kids and run. She's like, run, run to the nearest place that you feel safe. And then in a few days, you contact me and we are going to get this figured out. So Joanna says, okay, I'm going to go home and grab my kids. She gets back home. The house is all dark. And there's only Walter, who is obviously drunk. You know, she asks where the kids are. And he's like, they're gone. They're being taken care of. Don't worry about it. And she locks herself in the bedroom. And eventually he gets on the phone and is telling, you know, the men's association, we can presume like, yeah, no, she's locked in the room now. But, you know, it's it's, it's going to be fine. I'm sure that that's fine. As she, that's happening, she sneaks off and goes to Bobby's house because she thinks that's where the kids are. But Bobby is again being all robotic. She's like, you know, well, the kids aren't here. I don't know what to tell you. And so Joanne is freaking out and she 
cuts her hand. She's like, look, I bleed. And she stabs Bobby in the stomach with the knife. And Bobby's just like, why would you do a thing like that? And just (laughs) calmly removes the knife with no blood on it and just puts it away. And now Bobby begins to glitch. This scene is so good. You know, she just keeps kind of, she grabs a mug off the wall and keeps walking towards Joanne being like, how could you do a thing like that? Drops the mug, goes and gets another one. How could you do a thing like that? And drops it. Then she's getting these coffee grounds. She, I thought we were friends. I thought we were friends. I was just going to give you a coffee just over and over again. And so Joanna makes a fucking run for it. She goes home and Walter's there. She hits him with the fire poker and she's like, where are my children? And he says, well, they're at the men's association. And then he passes out. So she knows that she's probably going to be the next victim, but she can't leave her kids. So she goes all the way to the mansion. It's pouring rain and she hears the sound of her kids' voices. They're like, mommy, mommy. So she runs looking for it, goes into a room and it's just a sound recording. Mm. So she runs into Koba, who's the operations mastermind. And he says, oh, the children are really with Charmaine. He locks the door remotely and asks her, you know, if it, if it were the other way around, wouldn't you want a handsome husband waiting on you hand and foot? And here's the thing. No, I would not. Like, this whole scene, it's just the culmination of just everything about the patriarchy of just these men. They want everything to just be whatever... I, I, they want, they do want to be the kings. They want to be the kings mm-hmm. and have a live-in maid and sex doll and children who aren't children. And it's just, it, this makes the movie for me a little bit hard to watch because it just makes me so upset because it's so real. I just watched a great TikTok where this guy was going randomly up to women and he's like, you know, asking them like, should women be submissive? And this woman was like, no. Absolutely not. She's like, really? You want somebody to just do whatever? You don't want any conflict ever in your relationship? You just want somebody to listen to whatever you say and say yes? He was like, yeah, you don't want that? She said, no, I don't want that. I think that's boring. And if you want that, you're a dumb fucking idiot. It was amazing. She like never lost her cool. She just was like, no, why would I want that? And same thing here. No, why would I want some stud muffin at home? never raising a complaint like that's not a person it's not and that men today want this from women and she she asks him you know why why are you doing this and he said because we can and that it's perfect for both husband and wife he takes the fire poker away from her that somehow is what makes her scream because i really didn't this is the one part of the movie that i do not like really because joanna who's been this great character this whole time goes completely numb like like i feel like a modern retelling would be she wouldn't even let him pick up that phone to tell him to tell the other men that she's there fucking smash the phone smash him like she stands there and lets all this happen and then she's like oh and runs away that's the only part that i'm like why why does this have to happen so she runs and finds a replica of her room and sees the unfinished robot replica of her 
She's shocked into near paralysis when she sees that it is her, but with these empty black eyes. The Joanna replica smiles at her. She's wearing this like, I think part of this also is that they changed the women's bodies to be more buxom, you know, so she's wearing like, and yeah, that is true because when we see her wearing a dress earlier, she's got very small boobs, but now she's got this amazing rack and is in like this uh, lingerie. She comes slowly towards her brandishing a nylon stocking and then we fade to black. And the final scene is we see this bright supermarket where all of the wives are wearing these beautiful outfits. And when they see each other, they say, hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you? How are the kids? They're fine. Thank you. And then they walk away. We see the black couple mentioned earlier are the only people acting like normal people. You know, they're kind of arguing over something in contrast to all these robotic women walking around. And then the very final person we see is Joanna, who talks to Bobby. Then as uh, Joanna approaches the camera, it ends with just a shot of her eyes looking blank. And that's the end of the movie. (sighs) Legit, like, again, I don't know if I could watch this movie anytime soon again, because it depresses me. It makes me so sad. (laughs) Yeah. But like I said, like you said earlier, I do think it's important. And, you know, this movie was from 1975, which was a long time ago, but it is still relevant. And there are, you do have to watch it closely, I think. I don't think you can zone out, but you're rewarded when you notice all these details. Yes. And I think it's a great, it's, it is very chilling. I think that's the perfect word for it. Yeah. It's, it's scary and it's sad. And, um, it, it scares me that there are men that this isn't an exaggeration. Like it really isn't like there are men who want this out of women and who are angry that women don't want this for themselves because, the the details of the fact that Bobby and Joanna don't have a perfectly clean kitchen. Why? Because they're spending time being people, you know? This argument of, well, a man works this amount of time, so, you know, he should come home to a clean house. That's a fucking job. That's a job. Raising children is a job. Well, actually, it's not only a job. It's your duty as a parent. So if one's parent's doing all of it and the other one isn't, you're not being a good dad. No, sorry, not sorry. To expect this out of somebody is you really are expecting an indentured servant. And these men want women to be thankful that they're getting this. That's disgusting. And if you think this, you should reevaluate and talk to me so I can change your mind. Because <laughs> it's just. Whew, well, I think you, I think you have to really, I think what it comes down to is, do, do you understand that women are people? Do you want them to be people? I mean, if you just wait, the Japanese are going to have like sex robots <laughs> in a couple of years. So, you know what I mean? Like you don't have to, you don't have to worry about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, that's what I find so offensive is just this idea that, that women are, aren't people. Yeah. They're for like, you. And they're your prize, and they're your trophy, and all this shit, and... But what phobia is that? 
We've had these before, I think. But Gynophobia is the fear of women, and androphobia is the fear of men. I think I do have a fear of being turned into a wife. Part of also what I think really chills me about watching also movies. Oh, sorry. There was one more thing I wanted to mention, which was there's a scene where Walter or some one of the men says something about the women look like women when they're turned into these Stepford wives. And I think that's such a great line because, again, this is something I hear so much from men of like, hey, why aren't there any women that look like women anymore? Whose idea of a woman? Whose idea of a woman? The patriarch's idea of a woman? No, thank you. Like, if there are women who want to look like that, good on you if that's how you empower yourself. But this idea of like women don't look like women, no, women don't look like the unrealistic standard that you set, like that you for whatever fucked up, you know what the standard is? Um, women that look like little girls, uh, women that are emaciated, all white, you know, like just, mm, what, what idea of a woman, like, <laughs> you know what makes a woman, if somebody says, I feel like I'm a woman. And no matter how they look, that's a woman. That's the kind of world I want to see. So that that just got me again because it's so real. Yeah, I totally, I'm totally with you. I mean, I was never, uh, I mean, I everybody buys into, you know, the ideas that that we grew up with and stuff. But like, even when I was a kid and like at sleepovers with all my little girlfriends and stuff, I didn't really have a good time because they were always talking about stuff. I didn't find that interesting. And, and maybe there were really fascinating and intriguing sleepovers and I just missed out on all of them. But the ones I went to were talking about boys and braiding each other's hair and I hated them. I didn't like them. I never felt like, and in college I had, a friend and she wanted to have a, like a salon and like just have women and just like talk about like really deep intellectual stuff. And we only had one and it was all about cooking and makeup. And Mm. I got so drunk that (laughs) it was like, even for me, it was a historical like (laughs) drunk because I was just like, what? Like, this is what we're talking about. Um, That was unacceptable behavior on my part. But I just bring it up because I was so disappointed. Yeah, it's it's sad. And I think what also becomes really sad is internalized misogyny and how women do become the cops, the patrollers to other women. There's so many female creators I see who say that the most of their bad comments are actually from other women. Right. Yeah. And there's no excuse for that behavior. But the source of that is internalized misogyny. And it that like that's something we all have to unlearn. Like there's compulsory heterosexuality that a lot of people go through. Like all of this. And I just I think a great maybe thought exercise if you're ever feeling like you don't measure up to what the standard is, is like, who said it? Like who who are you doing this for? If a bunch of old, stupid white men said it try to let it go because why do you want to impress them anyway 
Like if it's a if it's a person who you wouldn't give the time of day for, wh- what do you care about what they want from you? You know. Yeah. So here is some trivia. After the movie was released, there was a feminist demonstration against it, decrying it as being sexist. One of the protesters hit director Brian Forbes over the head with her umbrella. Catherine Ross commented on the incident in the documentary The Stepford Life from 2001 about the making of the movie, stating that this was a powerful testimony to how the movie affected the protesters. And I will say, like, I... This movie, I, I would be interested to know what the feminist, what what at the time they were upset about, because obviously I felt a lot of very powerful, strong feminist messages from this movie, but I'm not against hearing what they would have to say. Well, I don't know if I have it listed here, but um, Betty Friedan, who I guess in the novel was the woman's liver that they had invited to Stepford, her, she's not name dropped in the movie, but she herself didn't like this movie and she said it was the only quote I could find is she said it was a ripoff of the woman's movement but the director Brian Forbes said this movie is not anti-women if anything it's anti-men I would agree so I I don't know why there was such why this was not embraced at the time by feminists and I haven't seen the the remake with um, my arch nemesis, Nicole Kidman. (laughs) But looking at the poster, I'm making a lot of assumptions, but looking at the poster, it shows her looking very evil with like a motion. And what to me already, if there's any woman posed as the villain in a movie about the step for wives, that would be wrong. And what I like about this is that none of the women are ever portrayed as villains, even in the scene where, you know, she has to stab Bobby. It's like Bobby's not trying to hurt her or anything. She's a victim. They're all victims. And men are the only evil ones in this film. And I feel like that is that not feminist? To me, it is. But again, I was not a woman in 1975. So director Brian Forbes claims that Diane Keaton turned down the role of Joanna the night before signing her contract because her analyst got bad vibes from the script. That's like so 70s. (laughs) Dude, the vibes are just not good for the script. You should not do it. (laughs) At one point, Bobby reads an article about the Texas Tranquilizer from October 4th, 1971, from the October 4th, 1971 issue of Time Magazine. This was an actual article and can still be accessed online. During an interview about the film, Paula Prentice was asked if she thought men secretly wanted a perfect wife. She replied, the dumb ones do. Actress Dee Wallace, who is later known for starring in several science fiction and horror films such as E.T., The Howling, Cujo, and Critters, has one of her earliest roles playing Tina Luis's character's maid, Nettie. I didn't even know. (laughs) The maid named like twice. Good for her. (laughs) Critics speculated at the time of its publication that The Stepford Wives was inspired by an older short story by Ray Bradbury entitled Marionettes Incorporated. This story is about a man who rents life-size robotically powered marionette duplicates of both him and his wife in order to solve his marital problems. Eventually, the marionettes destroy their masters and end up replacing them, much as the Stepford Wives did. That's a little bit of a 
that's a little bit of a mischaracterization of the story. Oh. It's actually very sweet. Oh. Um, the premise is you have a robot who like stays in your house and like goes to your job or, and you know, and then this guy wants to go to Rio. Like he's always wanted oh. to go to Rio. So he's going to go. But what happens is the duplicate is falling in love with the wife. Oh no. And so does say, you know, I'm going to put you in the box because that's where you need to go because you don't appreciate your wife. So it's actually a, a that sounds you know. nice. <laughs> I mean, it's actually kind of a sweet story. <laughs> I yeah. like that. I like that. <laughs> it's pretty short. You can find it online. A quote-unquote new black couple moving to town is alluded to in the movie, and they are then shown briefly fighting in the Stepford supermarket at the ending, while all the other Stepford wives do their shopping. They have a much bigger part in the book. In the movie, the wife's name is Linda, but in the book, it's Ruth Ann, and she's a children's book author. The final chapter is told from Ruth Ann's perspective, and it is she who notices Joanna's dramatic change at the ending. She's the only Stepford wife that survives in the story, although it's implied she will be their next victim. Mm -hmm. The scene where Joanna stabs Bobby is considered a film classic, perhaps one of the eeriest scenes of all time. It was voted as one of the 100 scariest movie scenes in a Bravo Film Institute special. Ironically, this scene isn't in the book. In the book, the men offer to let Joanna watch Bobby cut herself to verify that she is not one of the robots. Bobby is described as walking towards Joanna with a kitchen knife, at first maybe to allow her to test her this way. But as the scene progresses, it's obvious Bobby winds up killing her with the knife. So in the book, Robot Bobby kills Joanna, not Robot Joanna. I like that better, actually. Yeah? yeah. I, it's kind of weird, like you were saying, you know, Joanna's just standing there and the robot is going to strangle her. But it's like, why would the robot strangle her? I mean, I could see a man strangling her, but I like this idea that her like best friend, you know, she's totally gone. Yeah, she's totally gone. Film critic Pauline Kyle slammed the actresses in the movie, Catherine Ross, Paula Prentice and Tina Luis. She called them robots playing robots. Damn. That's the whole point. Is it not? I thought they well, did a great I think job she was being saying, static. Yeah, I think she was slamming their acting. Well, mm. I thought it was fine. I think it, it didn't fine. distract for me. No, I don't. I don't think so. So, you want me to do "Come si dice, Don't look now in Italiano, please. <laughs> well, this is where we look at the title of our film in different languages. So, most of the. Most of the titles were like the Argentinian Las Mujeres Perfectas or in Italy, La Donna Perfecta, like mm. the perfect woman or the perfect mm. women. But in French, it's l'homme crea la femme and man created woman. Mm. That's pretty eerie. Pretty good. So what does Letterboxd have to say about it? Well, David Britton gave it five stars and said, love me some good Disneyland slander. <laughs> when did that happen? Well, Diz is named Diz because he used to work at Disney oh, World. Yes. And he works on robotics. Ah, yes. Because I remember her being like, you know, that's fucking stupid Disneyland graduate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
OG Chope said, uh, OG Chope gave it five stars and said, this is what Don't Worry Darling was trying to do. This movie served cunt. <laughs> okay, so can you explain that expression to me? <laughs> okay, so I could be getting this wrong, but I'm going to tell you what I think it is. Okay. So at least from what I've watched in RuPaul's Drag Race, there is an idea of being fish. She's very fish. And that is a drag queen who looks like a quote-unquote like woman, maybe more so would – again, I'm not trying to – this is all about drag queens, not trans women. But that a drag queen would look like a quote-unquote real woman. She's serving fish. Why fish? Well, it's a pretty offensive term for vagina. Um, gay men have not always been the kindest to uh, vaginas. Um, so then – uh, you know, you might say serving fish. So a literal serving cunt is like, but now it's to the point where I think <laughs> it's like, you did that, you know? Okay. Yeah. Wow. She was serving cunt with that performance. Like, that's like, it's it's supposed to be intense. Yeah, it's intense. And if I got that wrong, Wohos, please let me Get know. Get in touch. Probably Rachel gave it five stars and said, Something changed in my brain chemistry when I saw it as a teenager. The tension in this is phenomenal, and the fashion is so beautiful. I agree, Rachel. When the copied bedroom is revealed at the end, it always shakes me. Mm-hmm. Isabel gave it five stars and said, quote, If I'm wrong, I'm insane. And if I'm right, it's worse than if I'm wrong. The horror doesn't lie in any kind of big reveal, but in the increasingly frustrating search with seemingly no end, no answers. There's no solution because it's all been laid out from the beginning. It's just a matter of when. <laughs> Goosebumps. <laughs> it's a good metaphor for a life sometimes. I actually think it's very similar to the other movie that we're talking about today. Jules gave it two stars. Great ending and the rest was dull. <laughs> I think I think even if you might find the story, like any parts where not that I didn't like the story, but any parts where the heaviness of it all was weighing on me, it's always a beautiful film. You can always just look and see. Like, that's something I didn't mention, but it's a beautiful film, and the clothing is amazing. Mm-hmm. The women look like dolls because they're dressed up like them. Jesse Rapp gave it one star and said, women be shopping. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that many lower star reviews because most of them just said it was very boring and that you could tell what was going to happen. I think some people, unfortunately, I hate to be, I hate to sound like an old man. I have to go through this too, but I do think attention span is just something we all have to work on now of trying to get better at Mm -hmm. because some movies just, they don't have a big wapow, wapow, wapow in every scene. So you sometimes just have to take a breath and just chill. So how would we, what what rating system should we use? I think we should use prairie dresses. Now, one thing I wanted to say is I don't know how it is in the book if they end up looking like Playboy bunnies or something. But Mm. apparently the woman who plays Carol was married to the director and she wasn't quite as thin as frickin' paula prentice and katherine ross 
So they didn't want to dress them up in Playboy Bunny type outfits because Nanette Newman was just a little bigger woman. Which she isn't. Like, if, like, no, what, where? It's nice for. It's not like, you know. But anyway, I do like the prairie dresses, though. I like yeah. the modest dress. And I think that if they would have come out looking like, you know, Playboy bunnies, I, I don't think it would have had the same impact. I no. like it that they are, yeah, they're just in this old-fashioned yeah. garb. And, and it's really contrasted when you see Joanna and Bobby walking around and they're looking like fashion stars, like, you know, wearing like, you know, crop tops and, and even like, like a button up and pants. Like Mm -hmm. that's to wear, to be wearing pants is pretty crazy in Stepford. So I agree with you. So how many prairie dresses would you give it, Mac? I'm going to say four and a half only because I only give five if I think a movie is perfect. And that scene really annoys me at the end where she just fucking stands there. I just don't see that character doing that. I think I would would give it like a four or a four and a half as well, but not a five. It's great. It's great. I mean, I think everyone should watch it. But yeah, I don't think it's perfect. No. What have we learned, Mac? Oh my God. Trust your gut, okay? For sure. Trust, like, get out. Get, you know, <laughs> <laughs> obviously relationships have their ups and downs. I'm not saying you should leave at the first sign of trouble. But if somebody is consistently belittling you, not not taking your feelings seriously, fucking get out. Because they never are going to start. That's an excellent point. And he, it does, it, I, I mean, I think it's a great you know, for metaphor for an abusive relationship, because it does, it doesn't happen the first day. You know, he, he, in fact, at one point he's like, yeah, they are, you know, they are kind of dull and silly, you know, but then he just like gradually starts, you know, diminishing her, her reality. And um, then finally at the end, he's like, you're irrational. Like what you're saying makes no sense. You need help. You're wrong. And that's what happens in abusive relationships. So it, and when she goes to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist says, you know, get out, you know, that is something that happens, you know, when you, when you find the support that you need and this, and somebody gives you the permission or the, you know, the suggestion you can finally hear that you have to get out of that situation. Yeah. So I think it's beautiful the way, he does that. Um, it is tragic. There was a letterbox review, I think, or maybe it was in an essay that I read where somebody said that they watched the movie with their girlfriend and their girlfriend couldn't stop crying at the end of the movie. Oh, that's I mean, if like, you, if you that's, take it to heart, it, it is, it is it's very, sad. very sad. <laughs> I, I was forgot to mention this earlier, but things really do Things like this, the story of like the housewife and whatnot. I mean, obviously being assigned female at birth, like I feel like anybody assigned female at birth is probably going to feel a little bit of something. But I just think what if somehow we were still, what if our society was stuck in the ways that it was before? I would be institutionalized, you know, like Mm -hmm. 
I couldn't live this life, but that was the only option. It's either that or, you know, maybe get fucking institutionalized or, you know, live by yourself, be an old maid, you know, that nobody respects or anything like that. And it just, it's, it's chilling because you know, people like you existed during that time and whatever they had to go through, you know, and I know, obviously we're not perfect now, but there was a time where they could just fucking put you away, you know? And it still happens today. I'm not saying it doesn't, but I just, I really think if born at that time, I wouldn't have survived. And that's scary to think about. Yeah, I I, I know it's really hard when you, you know, when you, when you look back in history. Um, I mean, even 74, I mean, I was alive, <laughs> you know, at that time period. And I think it's 74 or 73. I'm going to say 74. It wasn't until 74 that a woman could get a credit card in her own name. Come on. That's (laughs) scary. It's, it is scary. You know, it's very, it's not that long ago. I mean, I know I seem very old, but it's (laughs) it's not that long ago. (laughs) Not at all. That's what's scary about it is you don't seem, you're not old. Oh, thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Well, second movie is Kill List, and here's the brief plot summary from IMDb. Nearly a year after a botched job, a hitman takes a new assignment with the promise of a big payoff for three killings. What starts off as an easy task soon unravels, sending the killer into the heart of darkness. Bum, bum, bum. This movie was directed by Ben Wheatley, and it was written by Wheatley and Amy Jump. It stars Neil Maskell, Miana Burring, and Michael Smiley. We love you, Michael Smiley. <laughs> we love you, Michael Smiley. Everybody in this movie's good, but every time I saw him on my screen, I couldn't look away. He's so great. He's so great. Cinematography is by Laurie Rose. The release date was the 12th of March, 2011 at South by Southwest, and it has a running time of 95 minutes. Mwah. So we meet Jay and Shell, who are arguing loudly in front of their kid over money. And we learn that Jay has not worked for eight months, and Shell believes Jay's back pain is psychosomatic. But I think the back pain relates to the botched operation in Kiev that we hear over and over again. We never learn exactly what it was, but I think that's that fucked up Jay's back. Jay, Shell, and Son Sam mock fight with toy swords on the front lawn. Shell carries Sam on her back. <gasps> oh, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I just made... I've seen this movie twice and I just made the connection. <laughs> oh my god. Jay tells Sam a bedtime story that is a thinly veiled reference to a job he did in uh, Baghdadistan. <laughs> And Sam tells him he shouldn't yell at mom and that he does agree with her that Jay is a bit lazy. Rough. Rough to hear from your own kid, huh? (laughs) 
So that night, Jay and Shell host a dinner party with Gal and his new girlfriend, Fiona. We learn that Shell was in the Swedish National Service, and Gal and Jay worked in the past on a, quote, security detail. Before the meal, Gal asks if anyone is going to say grace, and Shell says, not at my table. Jay and Shell bicker at the table when their guests are away. We learn that Fiona is in human resources, although Gal says she is a hatchet person. <laughs> I know, and she just is like, oh, well, it's all about the bigger picture. <laughs> <laughs> She's like so out of place at with these three personalities. Yes, yes, but there's a theory. I don't think I agree with it, but I'll bring it up a little later. Shell takes some pot shots at Jay at the table, which leads to a growing tension as the night wears on. And I gotta say, the acting here is so good. Like, they don't feel like movie characters. They feel like you're, that's why it's so awkward. Um, And yet not to a point where you're like, I can't watch this. Like, I've never felt that. I just felt like it was really engaging. And at the end of the movie, over the credits, it says additional dialogue supplied by the actors. So there was a lot of improv, um, which also probably made it seem a little more natural. The tension culminates in Jay yanking the tablecloth off the table. Jay and Shell start loudly shouting at each other, and Gal carries Sam up to bed and tucks him in. That's a very sweet scene. Shell says... To Fiona, Shell says to Fiona, he was the one, though. And Fiona says, what, the love of your life? Shell says, no, the one who started it. (laughs) I love that part. (laughs) I love Shell. I love that she gives as much as she gets. Yeah. I mean, it's not good. They're not. (laughs) But I feel like other, again, like, I feel like these movies have powerful women in them. Oh, for sure. Complicated women. Gal and Jay talk a little more about the job and how the last one in Kiev was bad. Gal tries to get Shell and Jay to reconcile. The two couples drink, laugh, and dance. When Fiona excuses herself to go to the bathroom, she takes the mirror off the wall and carves a pagan-looking symbol in the back of it. She also takes the bloodied tissue from earlier Jay had cut himself shaving, and she sticks it in her bra. little odd. Weird. Jay apologizes to Sam about last night. Shell and Jay discover a rabbit in the backyard that they presume that the cat has killed. Jay insists on cooking the rabbit and eating it. Yeah, and the whole time Shell's like, not in this house, and he does it, and then he just sits right in the backyard in a chair in the middle of the lawn, and Sam's like, Mommy, what is Daddy doing? And she goes, he's showing off. (laughs) One strange thing on the phone is that Shell says they'll be there to someone. So there's a question, what is her involvement in setting up, you know, this arrangement for this new job? And we also learned that Fiona has left Gal overnight. He says, woke up with a Dear John letter taped to my cock. <laughs> wow. But he 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 is crestfallen. He is despondent. (laughs) 
Gal and Jay go to meet their new client, and there's this amazing shot of the rainbow over the car. The rainbow. I was like, is that real? Did they just get lucky? Like, wow. It's It's an amazing, yeah. Stark contrast between the tension and then this, ah. (laughs) Yes. So when they meet the client, um, the client slices Jay's hand very deeply. Yeah, it's gross. And it's sort of done in this ritualistic way. Gal and Jay check into a hotel, but Jay's card is declined, which causes more tension in the marriage. And they start stalking the first person on the kill list. Later, in the dining room, Jay and Gal overhear a group at a neighboring table having a sort of group therapy slash bearing witness sesh. And Jay grows more and more rage-filled until one of them pulls out a guitar and starts a sing-along of Onward Christian Soldiers. I love this scene because also they're the only ones in the restaurant and even Gal's like, out of everybody here, they plop down like right next to us. And I love because Gal's just kind of laughing at how angry Jay's getting. Like he's like, what are you going to do? And Jay's like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill every single one of them. And Gal's just laughing. Um, And then Jay just takes it a bit too far. A uh, gal even sings along to Onward Christian <laughs> He's Soldiers. Like, I know this one. <laughs> <laughs> but Jay pulls the guitar away from the man and threatens the man and slams his guitar on the ground. I love he says, because um, the guy's like, God loves you. He's like, if you are whoever <laughs> God is hanging out with, keep me as far away as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and this isn't like because Jimi Hendrix you ain't you know uh, anyway Gal apologizes to the group and asks them to put in a good word with the big man for them Jay's hand is bothering him it's the half moon so they find out that their tar- first target is a priest so we get a title card the priest <laughs> and uh, Jay kicks in the back door Um, Gal crosses himself in the sacristy when he sees the vestments of the priest hanging on the door. And all of this is, there's no dialogue. It's all, I don't know if there's music playing, but it's all silent. And we see mouths moving and stuff, but there's like all this action's going on. um, But there's no, no sound of anyone talking. The priest says goodbye to the congregation. Then he has a smoke. And then he extinguishes the candles and he walks into his office, which has now been covered in plastic. When the priest sees Jay's gun trained on him, he smiles. Jay tells him to turn around and the priest says, thank you. And Jay shoots him in the, in the back of the head. And then there's this montage of cleaning up and disposing of the body. And it's very quick, like boom, 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 boom. And later on a call with Shell, she tells Jay that Fiona came around with a gift for Sam. And he's like, that's a bit weird. Gal burns a picture of the priest. And next morning, Jay tells Gal that Fiona came around the house. And Gal sees that as a good sign. They see their target emerge from a seedy looking storage place. They break in and they find a room full of pornographic magazines and they're like what is this like a pornographic business or something it's like jay says it's a wank den <laughs> a wank den. but they're not there's not quite enough product for it to be 
like a distributing center or something like that. But then Gal finds all these images on the computer and he like immediately shuts it off. Like it's a, it's a TV, I think with like a videotape. Oh, is I it? Thought. I thought. Okay. Anyway, images, moving images and Gal shuts it off immediately. He's like, do not look at that. But of course you got to look at it. Jay does. And as he does, he begins to cry. And we hear like women's screams and whatnot. And Something I wanted to point out, because I'll be honest, I don't 100% understand everything about this movie, so I was hoping to to gain more. But something that I feel like is maybe important is like from the beginning, sometimes they're at times not always trying to rationalize what they're doing. Like with the priest, they're like, well, maybe he touches kids, you know? Yeah. And that's and like it's not a super important thing for them but i feel like it's something that they try to do and like there's some urge to rationalize it in a way i think that i think you could do a study for sure on the ethics of gal and jay and and you know i think that but i think you're right at this point anyway they both want to have a reason like they've been hired to kill these people so they're kind of like there's got to be a reason why someone would want a priest dead yeah. We get a next title card, The Librarian. So the next man, <laughs> he just says that he's the librarian, but he, he cannot tell them who films the pornography. He knows, but he doesn't want to give up the name. And they just fucking break into this guy's house. They don't <laughs> even like try with any rapping or anything. It's just on site. Yeah, it's great. Um, Jay just walks up to him and just like punches him in the nose and gal just sort of opens up the door and like pulls him in and but i was just like i hope there's nobody on the street like right <laughs> <laughs> but i don't think jay cares at this point anyway no now it's righteous jay beats him and burns him with cigarettes and the guy finally gives up the address gal goes to get the money in a safe upstairs and there's also a file um which he takes and when Gal goes upstairs, the librarian asks Jay, does he know who you are? And Jay is just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. And um, he, he just keeps thanking Jay and he says he's glad to have met him. And Jay just like goes to town on this guy with a hammer. Hammer on the knee. <sighs> oh, but it's okay. If you are a fan of gore. I was a big fan of this scene. I felt like it was, I don't know, it, in a way, it was too much without being too much. Like, I'm not going to go into major details, but the hammer on the hand, I felt like that was so beautifully done. And the hand, and when he, when he kills him, he, he kills him by hitting him on the head with the hammer. And there's this, like, flap of, of the guy's, like, skull. That, I, mean, I mean, flap of the guy's. And he's thanking him. The whole time he's thanking him. And it's so weird and creepy. So now, Jay says he wants to go and find the cameraman. Gal is against the idea, and he tells Jay he is, quote, off list. So they find the place that the librarian had given up. <laughs> Did you hear that? Yes. <laughs> what was that? I Rosie just, like, knocked, like, an empty bottle, like, onto the floor or something. <laughs> So Jay goes in alone and he tells Gal to come in. He's not back within 20 minutes. Gal sits in the car. He enjoys the juice box. 
he's a little, you know, agitated. And uh, then he goes in, he, he grabs a rifle from the, from the trunk and he goes in and from outside the door, Gal hears a kettle whistling. I don't know why that was just like a scary sound. Yeah. It's really like some people were there and now no one is attending to that kettle. Yeah. So when he opens the door, he discovers a dead dog and a dead security guard. In the basement, Gal finds Jay slamming a man into a wall. And Jay just goes, oh, it's already been 20 minutes. (laughs) And this man's face is flattened. It's barely a face. It's a bloody pulp. And Jay just like shoots him. Well, this is a problem because this guy wasn't on the list. The security guard wasn't on the list. The dog wasn't on the list. (laughs) But they build a pyre and they burn the bodies of the men. Jay says, doesn't feel wrong. They're bad people. They should suffer. And then he goes, used to love looking at fires when I was a kid. I love this movie. And the acting is so, because you feel like you shouldn't. It's not even that I like Jay. I just feel like this, the act, Neil, Neil Maskell, I just think he's so good. Mm-hmm. Like, Jay is obviously a really complicated person. Yes. All these characters are complicated. Like, they don't, and I guess that's the point, partly, is, you know, we have these characters doing these heinous things, but are they right? Is he okay? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, situational ethics is kind of a tough one. I mean, within the rules of the game, when you're a hitman and you've been given, you know, you've been given an assignment, you've accepted the assignment, but then you violate the terms of the assignment by going off list. But was he, was that a good thing? Because, you know, this other person was involved in shooting that heinous porn, whatever it was that they saw. Yeah. We see Jay in hotel window. I like this because there's a close up on his face. And then there is a series of um, shots that get further and further away from him. Yeah. And then we see what he's looking at, which is fucking Fiona waving at him. Very, uh, it follows. Yeah. Similarly. So this is something that I don't really like because I don't understand it. So it could be that it's in his mind. It could be somebody suggested that she's a witch. She has the power to like, you know, appear different places. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't think either one of those was true. I thought she was like literally physically there and he was seeing her and he was kind of like, what the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) I'm not even sure if he can make out that it is Fiona. It's very far away. But it's weird that a woman in a white dress would just be like looking at you in your hotel room and waving like that. Then he waves back, just sort of very <laughs> confusedly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Jay is back at home. So Shell welcomes Jay and Fiona is there drinking mm. a glass of wine. When Jay takes off his clothes, we see all the dried blood on the skin. But he needs help getting fully undressed because his hand is now quite infected and inflamed. The doctor tells Jay that he's fine, though. (laughs) And that there is only ever this moment. 
Yeah, and Jay's like, what happened to uh, the other doctor? So this <laughs> is not our normal man. Also, I know this isn't what they're going for, but this is also such a real thing of just like the fucking gaslighting that some doctors <laughs> do, you know, where you're like, no, I really think there's something wrong with this. And they're like, no, there isn't. No, it's fine. I know that that's usually a symptom, but I hate you. So it's actually no longer a symptom. Well, so one of the essays I read suggested that when the client cut Jay's hand, there was something on the knife blade and that the infection is actually part of this like reformation that they talk about. They're trying to build him into this, this leader of the cult, this, this eventual leader of this cult. Um, and so maybe, you know, this infection is actually part of it. Hmm. I mean, definitely them cutting his hand, because they cut his hand and not Gal's. And, you know, obviously some sort of infection. That's pretty good metaphor for like. The poison. You know, an infection rotting your brain. Yeah. He is getting more violent. Yeah, absolutely. Gal is going over some files, um, including a file on fucking Kiev. And there are photographs of them, like, outside the priest's church. Shell and Jay discover that their cat has been killed and hung up on their porch. Well, this is like a cat death that I'm okay with because it's so unrecognizable at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And it just looks like a a doll. I mean, it's all wrapped up and and it's, like, tied up with string in this really strange way. Um, And so Shell's like, Maybe it's kids. And then Jay's like, maybe it's gypsies. Like, it's just like, they, they yeah. don't know what to, to think about it. But Gal's like, no, it's some kind of fucking message. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we have a ton of money, actually, you know, from the librarian's house. And so we should just, like, leave. Um, he says, they have pictures of us, you know, and they have this file on Kiev. And how can that be? Oh, Gal tells Jay that he can't keep working with him if Jay keeps going off like a berserker. Like when he kills people, it's like way too, too much. And Gal tells Shell that he's done and that Jay needs help. Shell thanks Gal. Jay buries the cat in the backyard. And then later, Sam and Jay go for a walk. And Sam asks Jay if the cat has gone to heaven. And Jay says, maybe cat heaven he's like you really should talk to your uncle gal about that like he knows that kind of stuff i don't know shell encourages jay to find replacements for him and gal and to get out of the contract okay so if she was responsible for setting up the the job um I, I, i'm okay with that because there were other suggestions that she was actually like in the cult hmm but I don't think that makes any sense because of her behavior later. But if she just wanted her fucking husband to like, you know, do a job that had a huge payoff and she through her Swedish national service connections or whatever, knew how to get in contact with these contract killers. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with all that. Cause they did say they were like, you came highly recommended and they were like, by who? So who mm-hmm. else could know but her? Because mm-hmm. she's obviously in on it or in knows what's that. going on. Yeah. But not, but I don't think she knows 
that they're fucking cultists. I. But then the very end is confusing. Then her laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll get there. Well, the clients do not agree to those terms at all, and they say that if they don't complete the contract, they and their families will die. So Gal asks, how long have we been working for you? Like, (laughs) were we working for you when we were in Kiev? And the guy says, oh, you're just cogs in 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 the machine, and they need to just keep turning. And that what's going on is a reconstruction. Mm-hmm. So it's all very weird. Yeah, very cryptic. Um, cryptic and weird and like, okay, thanks. That doesn't explain anything. Shell takes Sam to the cottage um, until the job is over, which seems at the time like a very smart move. Okay, the last one on the list is an MP. Gal and Jay have a fight and Jay says he's going to tell Shell the gal started it. <laughs> But Jay says, all right, let's go and kill this MP then. Title card, the MP. So Gal and Jay, I kind of actually like the segment of the movie. Me so too. They're in it's the pleasant. woods. Yeah, they're camping in the woods, you know, outside the mansion where the MP lives. And they're keeping an eye on the estate. Gal kills two bunnies for dinner. And then I just wrote, is Gal the cat? I don't know. Because the only other the only other rabbit death was from the cat, we presume, earlier in the movie. And, and like this is a great I feel like they really do have a great relationship the whole movie of like I you know, I've never been a really buff macho man, friends with other buff macho men, but this seems like the kind of macho guy really close brotherhood, you know. Mm-hmm. That's the vibes I get, you know, of like brothers in arms. Yeah, and you know, like Gal seems to really love Jay and he says to him, he's like, you know, you look like a natural here. And it's like really, he's like admiring him. And then later, you know, uh, Jay apologizes. He's like, I'm sorry. I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, it's, I just, I lose myself. And Jay's like, not Jay, Gal's like, yeah, you know, you are crazy, but you're my best mate and I love you. Yeah. How sweet. I do think that you could make a connection between Gal and the cat because of what happens to Gal mm. coming up. Gal the cat. <laughs> now it's the full moon. <gasps> so they hear whistling in the distance and then they hear a drum beat. And then in the distance, they see people carrying torches. They see people in white gowns. Or people with no clothes walking with these straw masks that, like, not only cover the face, but extend above the face. Um, these very long, strange straw masks. It starts to rain. A woman is led onto a log, and her neck is placed in a noose. And then she is hanged. And Jay opens fire, even though Gal tells him not to do that. Then the horde like runs toward them and Jay and Gal end up in the catacombs and they end up at this one place. And Jay says, you know, this wall wasn't supposed to be there. So I think we can assume that the cult people boarded up this one exit. Gal shoots at the advancing group. One of the cult members stabs Gal in the stomach, like a lot. 
and Jay shoots the attacker, but Gal dies. And he says, tell Shell I'm sorry. And yeah, like Jay does like a mercy killing. Yes, Jay shoots him in the head. So then Jay arrives at the cottage and first they're like, we got to get the fuck out of here. But the tires on the car have been slashed and Shell sits on the steps. So I guess one way to interpret that is that she's like, oh, shit. Like, who did I put my husband in touch with? Mm. Yeah. You know, Um, I don't think she can be a member of the cult because she starts firing at these fuckers who are like, you know, coming and trying to get into the house. Jay says he's going to go outside and try to find them. And he tells Shell that he loves her, but then he's knocked unconscious in the woods. And then we get another card, the hunchback. (sighs) So there's a woman wearing sort of this circle of thorns, but it's at her eye level and her eyes are bleeding. It's just really gross and creepy. And Jay is stripped of his shirt and he's given a mask. And he has to fight a hunchback. And he and the hunchback slice at each other with the knives. Jay gets the hunchback on the ground and stabs it. And the culties all clap and take off their masks. And we see that they are the clients and Fiona and the doctor. And we see that the hunchback was Shell with Sam on her back. And she laughs as she dies. But I think confusing. I think her laugh is like fucking hell like fuck this 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 man that i love you know was destroyed by this job eight months ago we've been under so much tension because of the money and you know but i know but he told me he loves me i know i love him and this is what happens i think it's that sort of like can you fucking believe this shit kind of thing yeah Gosh, I never in a million, like, when you mentioned Sam being on her back in the beginning when they're fighting with swords, I totally never made that connection. Like, oh my gosh. I didn't see that before and I didn't see the moon before, but I was looking really, you know, closely Mm -hmm. this time. And then at the end, someone places a straw crown on Jay's head. So, Mac, what phobia is that? Well, sephirophobia is the fear of hammers. And I think we've had this one before, but ilurophobia is the fear of cats. Big bummer to anybody with that fear. Here's some trivia. The rainbow featured prominently in the film is a real one. There was a rainbow written into another scene, but it was changed when the crew saw one during the shooting of this scene. This film was written with the lead actors in mind and the filmmaker and the filmmakers had no other choices than them. That's great. The scene where Jay rips off the tablecloth was taken from several episodes in writer Jamie in writer Amy Jump's childhood. Oh my God. I know that's rough. That's sad. Ben Wheatley says a normal horror movie would feature monsters jumping out, but he's seen a great response to the more relatable horror of hearing your parents yelling at each other. Oh, God. Jay and Gal investigate the storage locker filled with porn and briefly watch something horrible on the video screen. It's never stated what they're seeing, 
but, quote, Smiley's imagination was so active in this scene, he said he almost threw up into his own mouth. Wow. I mean, that's, I do yeah. think that this movie, it's so smart to do things like that, because just showing somebody, like, looking horrified as you hear screams, your mind will paint all it needs to. <laughs> the librarian telling Jay thank you was co-writer Amy Jump's idea. It's scarier if someone asks for it, she adds. Yeah. Neil Maskell's father, Terry Maskell, worked on the film as a head lighting technician. Aww. The sequence where Jay hammers the librarian's kneecap and hand horrifies audiences and filmmaker alike. <laughs> Quote, I tend not to watch this bit, says Wheatley. <laughs> it's your movie. <laughs> <laughs> Neighborhood kids had surrounded them while they filmed the bit with the with the two hitmen carrying the librarian's body out and dropping F-bombs. The tykes were excited to see someone making a movie. If only we had that audio. Ben Wheatley wanted a few foxes running around near the couple's house, but the cost was prohibitive in part because they would have had to build a large fence around the area. Hmm. There is something, I think there's a line of dialogue, something about foxes. The Wilhelm scream, you know, that scream that's yes. used yeah. <laughs> when Gal fires his shotgun at the masked pursuers just before the hanging. <laughs> I didn't even notice it. Some people apparently interpret Shell's laughter as she dies as meaning she's in on it, but both Wheatley and Jump disagree. Oh, okay. Well, then there's that. So there's that. But I mean, <laughs> just because the writers say that doesn't mean you couldn't interpret it that way. And I think you could, except for the fact that she's shooting. The yeah, the cottage. That doesn't Unless, make any sense. I mean, I guess when he was shooting, one guy in the beginning was just like, "Yeah, you know." <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, I I think I I'll go with your explanation of just like it just being the weight of it all that <laughs> she just is like, "Fuck my life." Yeah. What does Letterboxd have to say about it? Well, Case Smasher gave it a half star. Amateur hour. People people keep telling me they like this, and I'm sick of it. You know what's really scary about this movie? That it inspires a bunch of dog-breath, diaper-wearing gurglers to <laughs> tell me about this absolute shit again and again. No, I don't want to watch it on Netflix, Rodney. Get fucked. Rodney reading this review like, I just it. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? I really like it when people talk to other people through the letterbox. <laughs> As if they're gonna see it. <laughs> it's not even like hyperlinked or anything. It's just like <laughs> <You> fucked Rodney. <laughs> Barry Donovan gave it half star. A very muddled and confused ending. No idea what the writer slash director was going for, but it just seems stupid. Evokes memories of Nicolas Cage's The Wicker Man, but not good memories. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, come on. No. Like, okay. I'll say I was confused by the ending as well, but you cannot tell me that the first, even if that ending confuses you, you can't tell me that the other parts are not amazingly strong. Like, right, exactly. this is not amateur hour. No, not at all. Come on. Krista Bass gave it five stars. This film never fails to give me a nervous tummy ache. 
The tightly coiled walking on eggshells tension radiates outward, and it is a masterpiece. Two skateboards gave it five stars. I know Wheatley is an acquired taste, and most people seem to not dig him, but I am a total sucker for everything he wants to show me. Michael Smiley is probably my favorite guy to watch. Last 15 minutes are so intense, it's transcendent. Wow. What, what are other things Wheatley has done? There's one that I just watched, actually, friend of the show, Eric Winnick, told me about it. It's called A Field in England. And I oh. have to watch it again. It's about the English Civil War. Mm. Smiley's in it. And it's great. But you definitely have to watch it more than once. Mm. Have you watched anything else by him? No. I'll have to look into it. Me too. Brian Hansel 67 gave it five stars. Absolutely nuts and loved every second of it. Went in with average expectations and left with my mouth hanging open. I'll say I agree with that. I think I went in with like, whatever. Gareth Little gave it five stars. The Wicker Hitman. <laughs> A slow burning film that really gets under your skin. Once watched, never forgotten. This film is genius. Five stars from Liam Fitzgibbon. They're bad people. They should suffer. Whitley's masterpiece, although a field in England comes close. Kitchen sink drama meets slow burn crime thriller meets balls to the wall cult horror. Sounds like an insane mix on paper, and it absolutely is. But somehow, it just all works. The tonal shifts are pulled off masterfully. It even manages to bring an air of Arthurian legend with it inescapable guilt and dread terrifying stuff quote sometimes god's love can be hard to swallow not as hard as a dinner plate (laughs) that's from the um hotel restaurant scene and eric winnick friend of the show aforementioned gave it four stars gender bending sorry genre bending (laughs) genre bending exercise a la Wheatley, buddy comedy veering into Hitman caper, careening into folk horror nightmare. Well worth the trip. Good call, Eric. Eric has another as another review on the site, but it was I wanted the briefer one, and I thought that was succinct and lovely. Yeah. What was I gonna say? Oh, um, so I saw an interview with Ben Wheatley, and everyone keeps saying Wicker Man, Wicker Man, Wicker Man, and he says I don't really think it's. I mean, he goes, I see how people would say that, but he says, I think it's more like the parallax view, which I just rewatched. So the parallax Mm -hmm. view is basically about a man who investigates a conspiracy and then is framed for an execution at the end of the movie. So he gets Mm -hmm. all wrapped up in this conspiracy. And, but it's the kind of thing where he was probably a goner, you know, as soon as he started investigating and that is a very scary yeah plot i don't see worker man at all i I don't either having seen both the original and the remake um (laughs) i think maybe people just saw those straw masks and their dumb dumb brains just went straw wicker man but that um that's about where the resemblance stops yeah i totally agree how would we rate this? In hammers. <laughs> I'll give it four hammers. 
I think I like it a little more than you, but I'll give it my patented 4.25 hammers. <laughs> it was four hammers and then just like the head of the hammer broke off. <laughs> <laughs> what have we learned? Um, man, probably <sighs> like, I don't know what kind of skill set that they had, but maybe just buckling down and doing some like yard work for somebody or like being a cashier would be pay less, but would not end in getting disemboweled. I mean, I think one of the things that it says is that when you're desperate, you know, when you're in bad financial straits, you'll do some pretty fucked up stuff. This is true. And also I think you should maybe vet the people you put your husband in touch with. Yeah. Don't let people just cut your hand. Fucking hell. I mean, also, that's also like a, a, and like go to the doctor. Also go to the emergency room. Go to your room. second doctor. And also like leave. If somebody fucking cut my hand, I'd be like, okay, bye. Peace. I'm leaving. <laughs> Would we watch it again? Yes. Yeah. I'd probably watch it again tomorrow. I really like it. Do you have a favorite scene? Um, I have many favorite scenes. I mean, honestly, I like any scene where we're getting to learn more about the characters and hear them talk to each other. In terms of violent scenes, I think that one with the librarian is pretty good. You can't, it's right, with whoever said that, you can't unsee that. And for me, I like, there's some things that get me for some reason really good. The cutting the hand was way more gruesome to me. Like, especially when we see him washing it and, like, the effect is just so good. And the mm -hmm. hand is just such a, like, I, I really do think about things so intensely when, like, I'm thinking about, like, how soft and, like, squishy a hand is. And, like, that grossed me out more than the little brief shots we got with the hammer. That's just me. But, um, anyways. I, I think the hammer scene is actually really done very well because, yes, we do see the gore and it is intense but i think it's made even worse by his screams that we hear when we're looking at gal you know in the other room i mean the fact that those screams can go all the way upstairs and uh, i don't know it's 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 a really intense scene yeah and like that this guy knows he's going to die so he knows that even if he gives like I think it's so intense for a character to know that they're going to die, be keeping up, not wanting to give this information away and then finally having to give it because it's just too painful and they'd rather than be killed. That's so crazy. But also I guess that he's honored that he's being killed by Jay. And that is creepy. It was super creepy that they selected Jay, I guess in Kiev you know, eight months ago, unbeknownst to him. And they, and they, they orchestrated this whole thing so that he would be formed into the leader that they wanted. Yeah. That's so fucked. And I mean, I think that's a great allegory for like, I think there are many people like, okay, there's no, in my opinion, um, nobody's born intrinsically evil. I don't think that's a thing. There's no way. But I think there's certainly more people predisposed to being violent or to having anger issues. Like, And the important thing there is to create an environment where those people don't get set off on the wrong path that, like, you know, 
fans those flames that exist within them. You know, I think, I think that that's the thing we should take away from violent offenders is like, sure, I'm not saying that some people are more predisposed, like, some people are more predisposed to others. Um, I've never been in a violent situation, so it that does not come to me at all. Like, I've never been hit before, so it would never occur to me to hit someone. Um, so with Jay, it's like he had these things in him, and it was because these people are pushing him in that direction that he finally becomes. I mean, he's got physical pain. He's got financial burdens, which caused the tension in his marriage. You know, it's like, that's a pressure cooker right there. You know, and then when he, you know, is exposed to the crimes of these people, it is just like the perfect catalyst, you yeah. know, to, to, to get him to, he was already <laughs> headed in that direction. Yeah. But, you know, if you set all these other things up, then, you know, you have this, the, the perfect candidate to, to lead your cult. Insane crazy and then it's great you know you get rid of all his connections to his family you kill his best friend and now he doesn't have anything left yeah perfect but violence fucking hell <laughs> i love this movie more it's now. so good yeah so me good. too <laughs> should we shut it down mac yes Thank you for joining us for this anti-penultimate episode of 2022 and for all your support. It means the world of horror to us truly. Next time, it's a couple end of the year episodes with our guests, five fave watches from 2022. We have hot takes from comfort films, film versus film, scare you, drag Mitch to hell, and pineapple shaped lamps. We will also have the whole squad pod discussing our fave six picks from 2022. We would welcome your support in the form of a five-star review or thumbs up on your preferred listening platform. Mac, what do you have going on? Well, if you would like to look at my art and follow my art social media, you can find me at Mac underscore Aritaville on Twitter and Macaritaville on Instagram. That is M-A-C-A-R-I-T-A-V-I-L-L-E. And I'm also on Macaritaville at Tumblr, if you have that. Thanks, Mac. Remember, Woolhose, we love you. And don't go into the basement.